Whether it's been a good week or a not-so-good week for you, uh, I'm really glad you're here. So uh, if, if it's been great, uh, rub off on your neighbor a little bit. And if it's not been so great, we will, we'll pray for you. So during the ministry time, come see us. Uh, you know, every year for quite some time now, probably 10 years or so, my mom's side of the family packs up and we go on a family vacation together. We go to Maumee Bay State Park up in Toledo and we get some rooms and we all just kind of hang out for the week, you know, play a little golf, eat meals together, play games, whatever, cornhole. We're big cornhole people here, if you haven't picked up on that. Uh, it's a great time. It's a great time. I love getting up early on vacation. I don't know if that's weird. Does anybody else like to get up early on vacation? I love to get up early on vacation because when I get up early, I find myself a cup of coffee and I find a quiet place to sit. You know, I mean, at the state park, it's near the lake or just somewhere where there aren't people, right, before everybody's doing their thing. And so I just kind of spend time, <clears throat> you know, sitting in the quiet, spend some time in prayer, read, whatever. And a few years back, I had gotten up early and I got my cup of coffee and I went out to the pier. And I was sitting on the pier, just looking out at the sunrise on the lake. And my younger cousin came out and, and joined me on the pier. It was odd that he was up so early because this kid was like eight years old. And he came out and he said, hey, you know, uh, I know that you're in like Bible college and I got a question for you. I was like, this is interesting. Where, where are we going? And so my eight-year-old cousin sits down beside me on the pier, and he said, do people who commit suicide go to heaven? And I was like, what did you just say? I mean, this kid is like so little, you know? And I was like, what just came out of your mouth? And I would love to say that I like gave him a really good answer, you know? And I was like, well, here's what I think. And, but the truth is, it probably sounded something a little bit more like, um, let's go back inside. <laughs> because it was awkward. It was unexpected. But, but the thing is, you know, it's normal to think about the end. It's normal to think about our death. It's normal to think about what happens with, with our world in, in the end of the world, right? I mean, there's a reason that apocalyptic movies are so popular. It's a whole genre of film and writing because people are intrigued by this kind of thing. And so never mind, you know, tragic and complicated situations like the one my cousin asked me about, it's normal for us to contemplate um, the end of things. And, you know, it's really common for evangelicals to talk about living with an eternal mindset or living with eternity in mind. Have you ever heard people talk like that? And, you know, that's nice, but I think what we need is a really firm grasp on uh, what that might mean. And so my hope today is that we would be able to go into a little bit more depth and consider uh, eternity and the long-term coming of the kingdom of God uh, in, in kingdom terms, if that makes sense. Because we're in this series called The Kingdom Story, and we're unpacking the thread of the kingdom of God through the whole story of the Bible. And when Jesus taught about the kingdom, he had some things to say about the end. Am I right? All right, so I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to keep going. So, 
Lord, we, we ask for more of your presence this morning. Uh, God, this, is, um, this can be a hard thing to think about. This can be a, a sensitive thing to think about. And so I just ask for grace right now that, that you would bring us encouragement this morning, that you would build us up in hope, and that we would uh, have our, our eyes set on the goodness, the scale of the goodness of the kingdom of God, and the ultimate uh, perfect justice of God, the ultimate um, way that he would have us uh, participate in what he's doing to restore this world and restore us. And so I just ask for uh, more insight and for the presence of your spirit, Jesus. Amen. So I want to start out talking about, you know, we have a little bit of a, maybe a misaligned picture of this idea of heaven. So we've been told that the hope of the Christian faith, the hope of our belief, is that we we believe in Jesus, and because we believe in Jesus, we get to go and live in heaven with Jesus forever, right? That's what we've been told. And I think that that is true. However, we need to weed through some philosophies and some theologies and some aspects of our culture that have kind of shaped the way that we see this idea of heaven or eternity. When we talk about the future coming of the kingdom of God, our minds naturally go to this place, to heaven, right? We, we get to go to heaven when we die. And, and the way that we think about that is that we die and our disembodied soul, so our soul like leaves our body and it goes to heaven, presumably in the clouds or something like that, uh, to be with Jesus. And it probably makes us think of some images like these. Kind of kitschy. Uh, the next one, yeah, like that. Next, right? These are, these are the things that like come to our mind when we think about heaven. And I'm sorry, but those are not very good descriptors of what God's doing with us and doing with the cosmos, so I, I, I really am I'm genuinely, if those are like really meaningful pictures to you, I don't want to take anything away from that. I don't want, to, I don't want you to feel like you're being mocked. You're not. But I, I want to just kind of call out that this is not really the picture that Jesus himself gives us of what heaven is like and how we conceptualize this thing. The problem with this idea of heaven is that it comes to us not from Jesus or from his apostles, but from the philosopher Plato. Plato argued that the realm of ideas was far superior to the physical world. That's what he said. He said that that thoughts and ideas were way more important than anything we can see or touch, and that spiritual things were inherently better than physical things. And Plato believed that the human, you, I primarily made up of soul, and that your soul is trapped in a body. Now, does this sound like some, maybe some teaching that you've heard in church before? Right? But um, what, what Plato says is that true salvation occurs when the soul is set free from the prison body. And, and he actually, he said, he said it this way. He said, 
we ought to fly away from earth to heaven as quickly as we can. And to fly away is to become like God as far as this is possible. And to become like him is to become holy, just, and wise. Now, if you'll remember, if you were here last week, we talked about the gospel of the kingdom. And the conclusion that we came to after we talked about the gospel of the kingdom for a long time was that God is near. God is near. And so that means if God is near, flying away does not make us like God. It makes us like birds. Flying away does not make us like God. It makes us like birds. And we are not birds, are we? We are not birds. We are human beings who bear the image and the likeness of God, and we have been given the assignment to usher his kingdom activity, his kingdom rule and reign into the earth. And so as much as I admire the early church and the early church fathers, their, their thinking was shaped by Greek philosophy because it's what was prominent in their time. And the problem with this is that it does not take the perspective that Jesus himself took. It does not take the perspective that the Apostle Paul took or any of the writers of the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's just simply something else. We misunderstand what God wants to do with our world because we have not been taught to think in terms of the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about, uh, the activity of God, that is. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a place and we're not talking about a people. We're talking about God's activity in the earth. Are you with me? Three, four, five people. Okay, cool. Good. I trust that you are. So last week, I introduced this idea that we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks, that when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he talked about it in four tenses. So like we think about past, present, and future as like tenses of time, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God in four tenses. He said, the kingdom of God will come. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming immediately. <clears throat> and the kingdom of God has been delayed. And if you couldn't tell yet, we're hanging out on the first one this week. I think I have a cool little circle. There it is. Hey. So we're hanging out on the first one this week. Um, the kingdom of God will come. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's a future reality that will come to us eventually in the future. Um, because we live in a culture that is driven by selfish individualism, we're taught only to consider the, the hereafter or what comes next in terms of what will happen to us. Because our culture is selfish, we're taught to think about the hereafter in terms of what will happen to us. So we only think about ourselves. We think about our bodies. We think about our souls. We think about what is going to happen to me at the end of my life. But the biblical authors have a different starting place. They try to communicate that Jesus understood the future coming of the kingdom and the end of the age in terms of the resurrection of the whole cosmos, the resurrection of the whole universe. And that was actually their starting place, and they held on tight to that, 
And because of that, then we can determine what happens to you. Do you see the difference? So where one paradigm is focused on what's going to happen to me in the end, the other is focused on what's God going to do with this whole project and how do I get to participate in the bigger picture? So I want to show you a couple of charts. These are going to be really uh, important for our next few weeks of teaching. Jesus talked about time in terms of two ages. He talked about this present evil age, is how he often said it, and the age to come. So he would talk about things happening right now in the present, and then he would talk about things that would happen in the age to come. And Jewish people listening to Jesus were thinking about time in terms of uh, like a timeline. Like you see here, a straight line. And here in the middle, we have the coming of the Messiah, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the general resurrection of the dead. All that means is just that what they thought would happen was that the Messiah would come and that, that the age to come would begin there. So this present evil age, it's going along, it's going along, and Jesus arrives, and then there, we're in the age to come. Does that make sense? Okay. But what happens is Jesus taught that the kingdom was future, but also that it was now. And so this, this creates an overlap in time. And it's what we call the now and the not yet in kingdom theology, or the already and the not yet. Those are, those are interchangeable terms. You can think about them the same way. And so what happens is when Jesus comes the first time, the Spirit is poured out, and then he is crucified and raised again, he, we, we say that he inaugurated the age to come. That just means he, he kind of kicked it off. He got it started. But in the teaching of Jesus, we see that this age kind of continues in a way that the Jews didn't really expect. So Jesus starts the future, but the present is still happening. It's confusing. It's a little mind-bending, I know. But we're going to talk about it a lot over the next few weeks. So you can just kind of keep, keep turning that over in your head. Take out your phone. Take a picture of that slide if you want to think about it some more later. Jesus comes and he announces the arrival of the kingdom. So when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, this is what he means. He means that the age to come, the future, has arrived in the present. But the present is still present. And so, you know, John Wimber used to say uh, that Jesus, when he, when he is raised and he ascends, he's not just on a long coffee break. Because a lot of people, there's a theology called dispensationalism. And what dispensationalism would have you believe is that Jesus is on a long coffee break. And eventually he's going to come back. But we know from the promises of Jesus and the activity of his Holy Spirit that he's not just on a long coffee break. He's empowering and pouring out his spirit on the church to carry out his will in the present until he comes back. So this period of time after the kingdom was kicked off or inaugurated is what the prophets and Jesus himself refer to as the last days or the end of times. And so end times theology and speculation are very, very popular in the church uh, especially in America. And I know that a lot of us have been involved with churches and movements that, that have a lot to say about this. They have a really well-formed 
theology of the end times and, and a, a really, you know, kind of systematized way that they think that all this is going to happen. And so I'm not telling you what to believe, but I'm telling you what kingdom theology teaches, which is what the vineyard ascribes to. So this is our position, if you will, on this, is that um, the perspective on the end of times, according to kingdom theology, is that the last days began with the life of Jesus. So the last days is not something that describes the last seven years of human history. The end of times is not something that describes the end of the world. It describes the age that we are living in now and the age that we have been living in for 2,000 years. Are you with me? Okay. Now we're going to come down from theology land and we're going to actually figure out why all this matters. Um, the now and the not yet refers to this time between the times. And so that's how we deal with uh, dissonance when we pray for people and they don't get healed and we can't figure out why. Some theologies would say the kingdom is only now. And if you pray for somebody and they don't get healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith or because they didn't have enough faith because the kingdom is now and that's the only bucket that we have to put it in. But what kingdom theology teaches is that we kind of have four buckets to put the kingdom in. And since we're living in the time between the times, sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. And when we see it, we get excited and we, we share about it. And we're, we're excited to tell other people about it because it's a sign of what God wants to do in the future. And when we don't see it, we know that the kingdom will come in the future. And so we don't, we don't get down on ourselves, and we don't call people names, and we don't decide that this person or that person didn't have enough faith. We, we mourn with those who mourn, and then we continue to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. So with that, I think this is an appropriate time to throw it over to the Bible Project to explain some of these things with just some really fantastic uh, imagery and words that I do not have. So this is the Bible Project. In the story of the Bible, there are two realms, the earth where we live and the heavens where God lives. And we've been talking about the spiritual beings, the Elohim, the divine council, angels and cherubim, the Satan and demons. And the last character we want to focus on is humanity. Now humans aren't spiritual beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, they're made of the dirt, like the animals. But notice that God calls humans to become something more. He elevates them to live and rule in Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. And they're invited to eat from the tree of life. And what does that mean, to eat of the tree of life? Well, it's an image of receiving God's own eternal life into yourself. It's about a whole new kind of existence. So wait, physical beings living forever. How could that even work? Well, somehow, sharing in God's life transforms our bodies so that we can inhabit heaven and earth at the same time. And it also transforms our imaginations so that we learn how to rule the world like God in the power of love. This is an amazing calling, but humanity is quickly deceived by a spiritual rebel. Yes, he lies to the humans, saying that they can rule and get eternal life on their own terms. And God exiles all of them from the garden. They're cut off 
from the source of true life. Evil and death now have power over us, and we live in a world of fear, self-preservation, and violence. But God promises that one day a human will come to defeat evil and death at their source and to open up a new way to a reunited heaven and earth. And this promise reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. Right, when we're introduced to Jesus, he's a human, but he's also way more. Yeah, we're told that in Jesus, God and humanity have become one so that he can restore the rest of humanity to its lost calling. And Jesus was tested by that same deceptive spiritual being, not in a garden, but out in the wilderness. Yeah, it tells Jesus the same lie. You could rule the whole world right now if you come under my authority and do things my way. But Jesus knew that that lie leads to death. So he rejected it and was victorious over the spiritual power of evil. And so then Jesus started announcing that God's heavenly rule was arriving here on earth through him. And so he went around confronting the power of death in his and in his exorcisms. Jesus was opening the way back to eternal life, to rule with God and become new humans. Yes, he also confronted our imaginations by teaching how corrupt spiritual powers enslave whole communities with their lies. Lies like, my tribe is superior to your tribe. But Jesus said every human is an image of God. Or the lie that power comes through force. While Jesus taught that real power requires sacrifice and generosity. Or the lie that peace comes through violence. While he said that true peace comes through self-giving love. This is a new kind of humanity. Yeah, a humanity transformed by God's life and his love. And Jesus didn't just talk about these ideals, he lived them out. Yeah, exactly. He brought God's heavenly kingdom to Jerusalem to confront the powers. In fact, that's what got him arrested. Well, so maybe the way of Jesus can't win over evil. But from Jesus' point of view, his coming death was actually a battle. A battle? Yeah, not against humans, but against the real enemy, the spiritual powers that enslave us through their lies. Jesus gave his life and let evil do its worst. But God's love has the power to create life, even out of death. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason Jesus is human, but a new kind of human. Yeah, when Jesus' followers met him alive from the dead, he had a transformed body that could live in heaven and earth at the same time. He's like a new category of human, one that can live and rule with God forever. Jesus is the new humanity that we're called to become. Right. He said that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And then he sent out his followers to announce that his eternal life is available to us now in the present. We can experience eternal life now? Well, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing this God of love so that our imaginations can be transformed as we're liberated to love God and to love our neighbor. And we trust that even if we die, God's love will transform our bodies and raise us up into the new creation. And that's how the story of the Bible ends. Yeah, the ending is a new beginning with Jesus and the new humanity ruling in a united heaven and earth together. Nice. The theologian, N.T. Wright, said it this way in his book, Surprised by Hope. He said, resurrection is not the redescription of, of death, so it's not giving death a new meaning. It is its overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. What N.T. Wright is saying here 
is that the way that we often think about resurrection as a different way of thinking about our death is not so. It's actually a whole different category of life in and of itself. Death has been overthrown in the final battle for God's creation to be redeemed in Jesus. Every power, every institution, every empire, every sickness, every disease, every evil injustice has been overthrown by the resurrection work of God that he's doing in the world. And we are seeing and participating in the working out of that reality. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about this. It's what they alluded to at the end of the video. If you want to read with me, I love to read and meditate on these verses because it's, it is the hope of the future coming of the kingdom. This is John the Revelator explaining to us what he has seen in his vision and what it looks like for humanity and for the earth to be raised to new life. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, there's something important to, to recognize about what's being said here. What's being said here is that the new heaven and the new earth are made out of what is already here. The new heaven and the new earth are made out of what is already here. And people, preachers, would have us believe that God puts the whole thing in the bin and starts over. And that's just not true. God makes new what was old. He fixes it. He doesn't throw it away and start over. And when we talk about the, the coming of the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is getting glimpses of this in the present. We get to peek into the future reality that the kingdom of God will come. And so when we pray for someone and their body gets healed, what is that? It's a, it's, it's a peak. It's a peak into the coming kingdom of God. And it's important for us to recognize that because if we don't recognize that, we start to think that it's about something else. We start to think that healing is about something else. We start to think that, that you know, healing is about uh, being conduits for spiritual power and having spiritual experiences and being, you know, and that's fine. That's fine and good. But what it really is about is it's about God giving us a glimpse into what he wants to do for the whole universe. And when we talk about justice, we, we could make the mistake of thinking that doing the work of justice and loving the poor is about the forward march of progress. Do you know people that talk like that sometimes? And the truth is that, that justice and loving the poor is not about the, the, the forward march of progress that's going to lead us into a utopian society. Doing justice and loving the poor is about having a glimpse of the future coming to the kingdom of God. 
And it's a sign to us of what God wants to do with us. Revelation 22 says it a different way. It's, a, it's another picture. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there will be, they, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And what is this picture? What's the point of this? This is the undoing of everything that sin and evil and death have done in our world. Humanity eats from the tree of life again that they were forbidden from in Genesis. Nothing is cursed. The curse is undone. This, this is the hope of fulfillment. The, the leaves of the tree of life are healing to the nations. So nation no longer rises up against nation. And that word nation is ethnos, ethnicity, people groups. People group does not any longer rise up against people group in this new humanity, in this picture of the coming kingdom of God. And that's why that, that work is so important. If you leave here understanding one thing, it should be that the point of all of this is that God will do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus at Easter. This is your, your Easter preview. This is what the Easter message is all about. Because God will do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus at Easter. When Jesus died and was raised from the dead, it was a sign of what God wanted to do for the whole world. And, and here's an important thing to remember. You know how we talked about uh, like the soul leaving the body and going to heaven and that whole thing? Remember that from like 10 minutes ago? Okay, when Jesus was raised from the dead... Here's how resurrection works. He died, and then he went into the tomb, and then his um, soul left his body, and then his disembodied soul visited the apostle. Wait, oh no, that's not what happened, is it? No. Jesus' body was raised from the dead and was transformed into something completely different from what it was before. Like, that doesn't really fit into any of our categories. Like he wasn't a spiritual being because he ate food and he spoke with his friends and they touched him and felt his body. But then he also walked through walls, walked through locked doors. It doesn't really fit any category that we have for, and that's because resurrection, like we said, makes something new out of what was there. So Jesus' resurrected body was actually made out of the old body because the tomb was empty. There wasn't still a Jesus in there, right? So like God used somehow, I, and, and I love that they said that in the Bible Project video. Did you catch that? They just said somehow this happens. And, and I think that our, 
Western empiricist minds are just so turned off to the idea that we could look at something spiritual and say, somehow that happened. It can't be tested. You know, we can't really run that experiment again to see like what happened, but somehow it happened. And, and, and some people would have you believe that we have to figure out how it happened. Some believers would say, you know, well, we must, we must uh, run the test to the best of our abilities and come to some conclusion about how it happened because somehow isn't good enough. But, but the truth is, somehow is good enough because there is mystery in all this before we get to the end. So Bruce Springsteen said it like this. He said, everything dies, baby, that's a fact, but maybe everything that dies someday comes back. The wise Bruce Springsteen. Probably no text demonstrates this better then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 38. And I, I'm just going to say there is way more here than we can possibly get through this morning. So do your own reading of this. Go back and, and dig into 1 Corinthians 15. It's a fascinating chapter. Paul has a lot to say about resurrection in this chapter. But we're just going to hit some of the highlights and unpack this a little bit. So it starts out, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is not a term that's particularly meaningful to most of us. It's just not. Do you, do you find yourself saying that word often? No. Um, the Apostle Paul is referring to a feature of the ancient agricultural society. And so there's a, there's a, a celebration in the Jewish tradition of the first fruits. What, what are the first fruits? Basically, what the first fruits are is it's, it's the first portion of the harvest that comes in. And we celebrate the first portion of the harvest that comes in because it's a sign that there's going to be a whole lot more to come. Does that make sense? So, so when the harvest time would come around and they would bring in just the first, the first bit of what the harvest would yield for the community, then they would actually have a celebration and they would have a feast because they knew that that was only the beginning of the harvest that they would reap in that season. And so the first fruits are, are brought as an offering uh, at the beginning of the harvest, a sign that there's a lot more to come. And so Jesus, the Messiah, he's gone ahead, and the rest of us will follow. And the notion of the resurrection of everything has kind of split in two. And so we live between Jesus' resurrection and our own. And in the middle, we celebrate the first fruits. Are you following? we got a quiet crowd in here, man. I tell you what, I would, you know, if there's one thing that I would, well, there's a few things that I would pray for this church, but if there's one thing that I would pray for this church is that it would just get a little bit rowdier because sometimes when you're up here and nobody's like, I mean, it's just, it's like, what is going on? So seriously, like, give me, give me something. I mean, I don't, I don't need you to hype me up as much as I just need to know that you're awake. Okay. So because of this celebration of the first fruits, we aren't passive bystanders. We aren't passive bystanders. We are participating in an unfolding story as we await the rest of the harvest. So we don't just sit around and wait for the rest to come in. In the meantime, we do two things. We celebrate. We celebrate the first fruits, and we work to bring in the rest of the harvest. 
the rest of the resurrection life of God that he has. Guys. So uh, it goes on. Paul goes on. He says, for since, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay? Yes. Yay. That's right. So since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. The reality of sin and death and decay was introduced into the cosmos by human choice, is what Paul was saying. And so by human choice, by Jesus, the God-man, submitting to the Father, resurrection life also comes into the universe. And then he goes on, and there's the middle portion where he talks a little bit about people being baptized for the dead, which is weird, so I didn't put it on a slide. But basically what he's saying is that there's a practice that's happening in the ancient world. People are being baptized for the dead. And he's, he's not really like, okay, let me just qualify this. Being baptized for the dead is not part of the Christian tradition. But what he's saying, he's actually making a point about the importance of resurrection. He's saying these people believe so strongly in the resurrection that they're baptizing dead people because they got this. Does that make sense? And, and so what's happening is he's, he's saying, look, that's not, that's not what we're about here. That's not what we're doing. We're not doing that. That's not a practice that is fruitful or, or allowed for Christians. But he's making a point about the significance of resurrection in their understanding. And so he goes on and he talks about the importance of having this understanding and this expectation for resurrection. And he stresses that that the bodily resurrection is our hope and that risk-taking activities for the gospel. There's another weird line in there about fighting beasts in Ephesus. He says, if I fought beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? And it's like, well, what in the world is he talking about there? All he's saying is that, look, risk-taking activities for the gospel are meaningless without resurrection. And, it, and then he goes on and he says, if the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And Paul says, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. And so Paul here is referring to this reality of the, the transformed, resurrected body of Jesus. When he says the body is like a seed, he's saying it's, it's, the, it's the material from which the new body comes. And now, if this is raising questions in your mind about things like, you know, what about our theology of disability? And what about uh, cremation and those things? Those are very good questions. Let's get coffee, <laughs> okay? Because there's just way more there than we could possibly uh, divulge this morning. But what we have to uh, pay careful attention to is what Paul says. He, he, he doesn't end this passage by saying, so let's just celebrate the great future life that awaits us. 
Because you could easily draw that conclusion. You could say, well, I see what's coming, and it's exciting, so we're going to celebrate now and worry about the rest later. But what he says is uh, he encourages us to get on with our good work. He actually says, uh, come to your senses and stop sinning because God will not let it go to waste. God will not let it go to waste. There's more to this reality than just the future thing that we're celebrating and that we're looking forward to. He's saying that there is actually work uh, to be done. And so this flying away to a place in the clouds picture of heaven does not really encourage us to do good in the world. It encourages us to prepare for launch. That's right. It doesn't encourage us to do good in the world. It encourages us to prepare for launch because this whole thing, God's going to you know, toss it and, and we're going to start over. But that's not really the New Testament reality that's portrayed here. Uh, the great black liberation theologian, Reverend Dr. James H. Cohn, who deeply influenced Martin Luther King Jr., he said it this way. He said, and yet the Christian gospel is more than a transcendent reality, more than going to heaven when I die to shout salvation as I fly. It is also an imminent reality, a powerful, liberating presence among the poor right now in their midst, building them up where they are torn down and propping them up on every leaning side. So the meaning of this gospel work, the meaning of this gospel work is to live it out in the present. It's to enact it. It's to participate in the future reality of the coming kingdom that is breaking into the present. So what, what, what do we do about this? Because that's a lot. That's a lot to think about. But what do we do in light of everything that we've seen here? Two things. I propose that we do two things. And you can write them down or whatever. The first one is uh, we work. We work to demonstrate the kingdom resurrection reality that's coming for us. We heal the sick. We raise the dead. We cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. We do the work that Jesus gave us to do because it's a sign of the life that's coming. We work for justice. We work for peace and for people to come to the knowledge that God is near. And we work because we don't yet see everything subjected to Jesus. There's a lot of powerful imagery in the New Testament about everything being put at Jesus' feet, everything being subjected to him. And so we work because that hasn't happened yet, clearly. And the second thing we do is we celebrate. We celebrate because God's heart has been revealed to us in Jesus. We know that he's the restorer of everything and that he will eventually be all in all, everything in everything. And we celebrate because all things will be set right and we'll, we will eventually feast together, every people group healed and reconciled by the blood of the lamb. And when we stop celebrating, we actually show that we have lost the sense of God's presence among us. And so that's one of the primary assignments for the church is to be the celebrating community of what's coming. And so, uh, worship team, you guys can come on up. And what we're going to do is we're going to take communion as we begin worship. As the celebrating community of resurrection life, I want to challenge everyone here to receive this meal as a good gift because 
Um, when, we, when we do this, when we, when we take communion, what we're doing is we're proclaiming the work that's yet to be done, and we're celebrating the work that Jesus has done. It's an invitation to proclaim and to participate in the suffering of Jesus, and it's an invitation for us to gather around the table and to share a meal and be the celebrating community in the present. So, uh, communion people, you know, get, find your places there, and um, I'm just going to, I'm going to pray us in. I'm going to read a little scripture, and then uh, the two stations in the back, if you would like to receive prayer during communion or a prophetic word, you can go to the back. Uh, John and I will be up front here, not praying for you unless you really want it, all right? So, uh, the Lord Jesus the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Jesus, we just invite you into uh, this moment of stillness. We ask for your presence. We ask for you to be speaking to us. We love you, Lord. Amen.